Hey, you are listening to The Workplace Theater. This is the podcast where we go behind the scenes of corporate real estate, talking to industry experts about how they shape the next generation workplace. I'm your host, Sabine M. And in today's episode, I'm speaking with Toby Lewis. Toby is Senior Manager Collaboration Strategy at Logitech. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm with Toby Lewis from Logitech. I've heard a really great presentation from him on meeting culture. That's why I wanted to have a more detailed conversation about that. And that's why he's here. But as usual, let's start with the basics. So Toby, what is your role at Logitech? And what's your professional background? How did you end up there? Sure, sure. So I sit in the collaboration strategy group. We sit between product and sales. And probably the best part of my role is working out what the outward facing practices and stories are that our sales teams are going to take to our customers. And we're a feedback loop from our customers back into our products as well. It's a great role to be in, to talk to our customers about all of the coolest new stuff coming out, find out their reactions to it. And you know, really kind of see what sparks with them. Myself, previous to Logitech, I come from a consultancy background from a kind of a lot of the largest collaboration tech companies. Um, I've spent most of the last 20 years running teams that designed some of the most widely used video and collaboration networks and spaces for this and for the main audience who who understand workplaces and workspaces and, and the environment that we're in, we used to do the big corporate business video spaces. One of my colleagues used to do a post, which was always today's view from the TARDIS, because we'd often be putting big suites into, you know, the, the 42nd floor of Canary Wharf or the, the 115th floor in Dubai, where the, the big corporate headquarters were. So quite often we'd get a week where it was just the most spectacular use. But again, with that, you know, that's part of what I see with video is, is it was used a lot by the elite and the pandemic's kind of, it's democratised the use of video and it's democratised the use of those spaces and where we need that collaboration technology. So it's, it's really lovely to be coming back down from the TARDIS and looking at it from ground level. Now, I do see and know that you're in home office or in a remote setup right now. How does the return to office look like at Logitech? Is everyone at home or is there flexibility around how to handle things? There's a lot of flexibility, actually. Well, I suppose the, the manufacturing is actually running at pre-pandemic levels. And in, in fact, some of it's running slightly higher than pre-pandemic because some of our products, webcams particularly, they've been in quite high demand over the last, you know, over the last 18 months. But the knowledge workers, so our knowledge workers still haven't fully returned to the office apart from for essential meetings. Our offices are only open to a certain amount of our staff. And so we're running essential customer meetings, but we're still being asked to stay, you know, stay as remote as we can. Obviously, we're in a really lucky position because we make the technology for remote workers. So that puts us in a very good position for that. But I suppose 
where we are it is i've been in this industry for long enough that i can say that video's pretty much been a science experiment for the last 25 years pandemics forced everybody to adopt video and as a business actually we were no different from most of the other businesses out there. We have product teams and marketing teams that are used to all sitting in the same offices together. They're used to, you know, being creative in the same room, in the same physical space. And so we had to make the transition to hybrid and we're still working an awful lot hybrid. Logitech has been fabulous in as far as um, its compassion towards the people that work for it and the the practices that it's allowed. We've had a lot of people actually during the pandemic moving around. So we do now have senior teams who are now dispersed, whereas they used to be two miles down the road. Actually, a lot of them have moved out. So we've, we've really embraced that hybrid situation. And what we're working towards is our offices being really a culture place where our people can come to. And when they need to be in the same physical space together, we're making sure that that's what our offices are. We're, we're trying to make them the attractive places for our, for our people to come back to. It's kind of, I think that's, you know, that's where you saw me originally, is that we've not just looked at this from a technology point of view. We really wanted, and we've really strived to work out what a successful hybrid situation looks like, not just with the technology that we make, but what are all the outside influences on that technology? And that's, you know, that's, I'd say that's where you saw me originally when we were trying to work out what the balance of remote and office means and how that can be most effective to the humans and how those physical spaces can be made better and actually how the human practices around those can be made better as well. Now, I feel confident since you brought the topic up to drill further into it. How do you define hybrid work? I am not the greatest fan of the phrase hybrid. Who is? <laughs> I hear constantly people saying like, this is the worst definition ever, but everybody keeps using it. They really do. They really do. And they use it and they spread it all over the place as well. You know, I've exactly that. So we ran a poll with a load of our users and um, hybrid means so many things to so many people. It's like 10 years ago. If you ask people what unified communications was, some people would tell you it's video and audio together. Some people would tell you that it was webcasting. Other people would tell you that it was the ability to halve the IT workforce because all of these technologies were coming together. It, it meant all things to all men and hybrid seems to be the same to some of our customers. It's contracts, to some of them it's logistics, to some of them it's physical facilities, and to others it's, you know, God knows what. So we've tried to look at what hybrid means to us as a business because and what it means to our customers. And actually that's been that's been quite refreshing for me is, is that I can leave our facilities people thinking about what hybrid means to them and I can leave our legal people thinking about what hybrid means to them. So I've concentrated on what hybrid means to myself, my teams and the customers that we affect. And actually to us, that's meetings. To us, it's when more than two people want to come together, be they physical or remote, and collaborate and effectively and communicate with each other. So, so to me, hybrid actually doesn't mean working because you can work from anywhere. I'm working from home right now, or I can work in the office and I could work on the train. That's not necessarily hybrid for me. That's maybe flexible. But 
where the hybrid comes in for me is when you suddenly have to meet and collaborate with people, but you're not both in the same location. I totally agree with that. You're either here or there when you're working, but that's not really a hybrid something. It's about the meetings. And I think when people say hybrid work, they mostly mean meetings as well and not really anything else. We took a poll at the last event that we did with with all of the users in the room and we actually asked them, what does hybrid mean? And we gave them three answers to choose from. And the first one was, it's a Toyota. The second one was, you know, it's the coming together of physical and digital spaces. And the third one was, we've got no idea. And you know what? 42% of the people in that room chose, we've got no idea what it means to us. Ah, my first guess would have been the Toyota, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we did. We did. Actually, I've got the survey up next to me here. And 12% of the people said it's the Toyota. Okay, so that's the 12% with the dark humor in there. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> okay, uh, now you tapped a little bit into it and mentioned that as part of your work for in sales enablement, you are working with behavioral scientists and issued several surveys on the topics of working from home and the technology application. So I'd be really curious to hear a bit more about the insights that you surfaced there and maybe some of the surprising findings. My team became mildly obsessed on essentially what the meeting space of the future should look like. Um, you know, we we use the term hybrid again, but the hybrid working shift, it's seen people try to make the best of whatever they had, but there is room for a shift in mindset and mentality and and use of physical spaces and use of actual meetings. And as the company has said, we had to look at what we can affect. We've got a couple of teams working on a few different things. One of our teams is working on something we call a corporate athlete. And actually, they're they're all into human performance. And they actually want to know how uh, human performance is affected by outside influences like temperature of meeting rooms and CO2 levels and distraction and noise and all of that kind of thing. And that's really interesting. One of the things we surfaced from this is that men like a temperature of 19.7 degrees in the office and women like a temperature of 20.4. And we've run through all of those kind of things. So we know that we're always going to be fighting over the, the controls for the heating in the rooms. That's just going to be human nature. So we went off and we started talking to the behavioural scientists because we didn't just want to know about how the technology was working, talking to our IT friends and saying, how many support cases do you get a month or a week? We wanted to find out what people really felt about those spaces they were in, the meetings they were in. And the results were pretty damning really damning. In fact, um, some of the things that we surfaced where I've got the results here next to me as well, 92% of the respondents said that their meeting rooms could be improved. 95% said their meetings could be more productive. That's kind of, these are landslide results. 86% said meetings should be more collaborative. Interestingly, and personally satisfyingly, 63% said meeting a technology VC gear in meeting rooms didn't work sometimes. So as an industry, it seems that our technology is working better than meetings are. You know, I've got to be quite pleased about that. So one of the things that we really look at is, or what we're really looking at now is, how can we help our customers then? Do we need to improve our technologies? Because it looks like we obviously, we can always improve technology, but actually, do we need to help them with the practices that 
sit around that technology more than we do on which buttons we've got or features we've got. What we really surfaced out was that our meeting spaces are mostly cold grey rectangles and they look the same. You're, I can see you're sitting in one right now. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't like our meeting rooms, actually. I feel ashamed to say because they're like very corporate and boring. So it's just, yeah, tables and equipment in a room. They look the same as they did 30 years ago. And people of, I don't know, say it, my generation, I'm sitting here with some slightly graying hair here. For anybody that can't see me on the podcast, you can imagine how old I am. But most of our meeting rooms have been designed as kind of like multifunctional spaces. You have to be able to do everything in them. You have to be able to come in and do a board meeting or you have to be able to move the tables to to do a collaboration meeting or you need to be able to draw the blinds to be able to run a video meeting in there. And actually, necessarily, what we've done is we've just created these multifunctional spaces which aren't necessarily that conducive to the types of meetings that we want in them. And we're looking at what, say, Gen Z and on our 20-year-olds our coming up now, they've had a very different growing up than I have. So what are they looking for? And this is something that we've been really looking at is, is what do the 20-year-olds look for? How are they stimulated? What kind of things are they doing in the office? Because they're going to be me in 20 years' time. And it would be really sad if their meeting rooms in 20 years' time were now 50 years old, as opposed to the 30-year-old meeting rooms that we're looking at now. There's a shift that can happen here. And, you know, with, with a generation that is more surrounded by information, that has more to process, actually, do we need to make more focused spaces for those people to be in to close the world down from the amount of information that they have and make them work more effectively? And those, those are the kind of things that we've really begun to find out is that actually, as we get through the next 10 years or so, that meeting rooms and meeting spaces need to be designed to be effective for single uses or for for particular uses. The way we're looking at it from Logitech is if we're going to have less people in a desk at a desk every day, we make more spaces for those people to come in for our kind of a cultural hub is we talk about how can we make those spaces more addictive for the people to come in. It's a strange word to use now, but if you feel compelled to come into the office to use those spaces because it's so good, how much is your work and your performance going to be increased by doing that? I think addictive is not the worst word to use. I've heard lately, like, I think the worst word I've heard to attract people back to the office was like enticing. And I it got stuck in my head and I started to use it as well now, but I don't really think I get enticed by the office. So it's like... Okay. What I found intriguing about the research that you've done around meeting culture as well was that you said there was different emotional content in meetings, in different types of meetings. And I think there's not enough awareness around this typology of meetings and how those can be best supported, actually. So it would be great if you could go into that. Yeah, sure. So we kind of, we looked at all the types of meetings that people had and we kind of categorised them down into sort of five or six. And 
we were actually able quite quickly, once we kind of formulated what people's meetings look like, we were able to group them and we were able to almost put them into age ranges and types and emotional content. And so the young people that are coming into the office now, when you talk to them about meetings, they expect meetings to be what we call a alignment conversations. So they very much expect it to be a one-to-one experience, which is an upload-download. Somebody more senior than them downloads an awful lot of information to them. They upload a small amount of information back and everybody goes, right, we know what we're doing next. And they walk out of that room. And that meeting has a really low emotional content to it. It is factual, fact-driven, and it is about a process. But then you come into a, a, and like say, that happens between usually more senior people and more junior people. That's when people who've got themselves established in their career, they've been in their career for kind of like, you know, five, eight, ten years. They're really comfortable with their level of knowledge. They're comfortable in themselves and their position that they have within the office. And a lot of ideation and creation comes from these collaboration meetings. And essentially, it's usually people kind of in their 30s where they are that comfortable. They all walk into that room together. They've got great ideas. They've got great passion and drive and delivery in what they're doing. And the energy level in that room is is huge. So the emotional content of that meeting is much higher because people are really invested in what happens in that room. The odd thing about it, and I think we've all been in those kind of collaboration meetings, is that the, the level of arrogance in that room is actually also dialed up because there's a lot of people who want to get their work across. And that kind of comes back, you know, that emotional level actually comes back into the physical space as well. How can you make that physical space for that collaboration meeting really good? And there's there's a thing about whiteboards and people always say whiteboards are great in meetings, but but why do they say that? And actually a big part of that is because when you get up to do something on the whiteboard as a human, you're we're predisposed to putting things on walls. You know, there's millions of year old programming that wants us to put things on walls. It's kind of documenting history, but it's bringing out experiences and where we can't articulate sometimes. We're much better at physically writing it out because it's it's a slower process that your system two brain can work on. If, if any of you haven't read Thinking Fast and Slow, Go and look it up and just read the first two chapters and it talks about your system one behaviours, which is, you know, it's the old part of your brain, the fight or flight part of your brain. And system two is your cognitive thoughts. It's the it's the thing you do slowly while you think. And writing on whiteboards is really good for that. But the physical process of being on a whiteboard, you've stood up, you've moved towards the whiteboard. So you've done two things. You've increased your heart rate and you've increased your blood flow. So you've got more blood, and more oxygen going to your brain, which means you're more creative immediately in that position. You've also taken a, you've taken a choice to get up and do something creative. So you've also changed your mindset. So it's not just that whiteboards in a room mean that people can write on them and it's cool. 
and you can remember stuff. Actually, there's, there is a physical show and a physical shift as to why that's more enticing in a creative environment. And you come then towards the practices that sit around it. Keep those kind of meetings down to 40, 45 minutes. It means that people's energy levels stay up. It means that they stay very, they stay very invested in that meeting. Actually, give them uncomfortable furniture, because if you give them comfortable furniture, they sit down and they get comfortable. If they've got uncomfortable furniture, they're going to keep moving and they're going to keep their blood flowing. So that collaboration meeting it is going to be much more emotional, much more creative, and much more successful. And then we kind of come. There's there's a couple of other ones, but my my favourite one is social interactions. We've got that as kind of um, the the final, what we call the final meeting stage, and that happens usually with very senior people who have been in their careers. You know, they're they're in the second half of their careers. They are very well established. They're very well, um, very well thought of. And this is often board level. And this social interaction meeting could be in a in a cold, hard boardroom where everybody's got to look at spreadsheets. They've got to look at charts. Most of you know, hopefully they're going up and to the right, not down, and all of that. But there's nothing really emotional about that bit. You've got to say yes, no, blah, 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 blah. But as a senior leadership team, what happens is you go through kind of three or four really important decisions. And then the senior leadership team will often then start imparting their wisdom from the last month or quarter. And the social interaction will actually start at that point where they start talking about staff, where they start talking about experiences they've had. And it's really kind of like the wisdom element that really comes into that. And actually, often uh, the most valuable part of those board meetings is once that wisdom starts coming in and out between the senior leadership team. And interestingly enough, that point of the meeting would work as well in a pub or a restaurant as it does in that meeting space. So we've had people who've been really cognizant about this. We've got a customer that's built a cold grey boardroom for the guys to sit in and do the spreadsheets. But outside of it, they've got a beautiful view from the South Bank across London with these glass walls. And there's just some really comfortable sofas. There's no power cables there at all, no technology. And it's designed for the board to kind of sit down and do the numbers and then come out and physically relax themselves, you know, sit back in their chairs, put their put their legs up without the distraction of computers and actually have a social interaction with each other around what essentially looks like a, a 200-year-old library where you can pontificate about the best thing to do. And the emotional content of that meeting is massive because it is all about experience and it is all about kind of calmly bringing forward viewpoints of of all of the people that you're with and i find it quite fascinating actually what i like to understand is like is that for the last one that's kind of typically the board meetings where do the majority of meetings fall in that spectrum actually the majority of them fall somewhere between alignment and collaboration there's there's a formal meeting exchange and what we actually one of the things that we're really finding is that a large proportion of the meetings are between that group collaboration and the social interaction at what we call formal meeting exchanges which is a broadcast 
a lot of people come into a room and you spend an awful lot of time having one person telling the rest of the group what they've done. And then the next person tells the group what they've done. And then the third person tells the group what they've done. And there's not a lot of backwards or forwards that goes on in that. It's just a formal meeting exchange. And actually what we're finding is, is that most meetings fall into that category. And we think that people find them less productive. People that, The stats that we've got show that people find those less productive because they basically spend more than two-thirds of their time hearing stuff that isn't relevant to them. It's just a sad fact of, of how those meetings are operated. And we think that's one of the things that, you know, could be changed. Can, can you impart information differently? You Certain people in certain rooms, certain people are really happy to be in that room because they genuinely are fully invested in making sure everybody or they know what everybody else is doing other people actually only need to know 10 percent of it so we think that necessarily those formal meeting exchanges you could just get more intelligent about how you distribute the information to those people yeah absolutely i think that we have a good chance to have a hard look at all the meetings we're having and thinking about do they need to happen is that like something that could be done asynchronously um, as well. And I do remember these meetings where, where I've been sitting in them. And then at the beginning, because people knew that you'd not be interested in everything, you'd always be told like, please close your laptops because we want your full attention. <laughs> I don't think this, this could happen today anymore because of course you have people online, so you can't close your laptop. <laughs> then also when it comes to more of emotional content, when you're talking about the typical 30-year-old meeting type, I forgot the name immediately, of course. I will have to. A group collaboration. Group collaboration. A lot of time... What you said about the arrogance level is really interesting as well, because a lot of time those kind of meetings to me felt a bit like in the beginning of people to unfold their position and ideas like a little drama or a play that you're watching on stage and characters being introduced and they making clear what their what their stance in it is. It's like a little out of body experience where I was like, okay, what are people doing here? <laughs> Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a performance in the group collaborations. And actually, sometimes you have to be more gregarious in there and more like an actor because you've got to, uh, <laughs> that's a really good definition of it, actually. And I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. I'm going to put that, I'm going to steal that from you if you don't mind. And I'm going to put that back in. This is all research. It's still all research. Yeah. Well, same for me. So we're like mutually benefiting from this. This is great. Going back a little bit to the office, how do you see the purpose of the office? Maybe difference in the past and going forward? We definitely see a difference happening. And we're equipping meeting rooms and we're equipping personal people. So a lot of our interactions is with a kind of facilities groups who are now, all of a sudden, they've got to put video. Video has been democratised. They've got to make sure that, or they're, they're being tasked with making sure that so many more of their meeting spaces have video in because we think the one thing that you can't guarantee is even if we see a shift of people going back to the office, I think from now on, the one thing that you can guarantee is that at least one person in a six-person meeting won't be in that same room as you. So there's... There's got to be a level of collaboration in there. But 
we're seeing it ourselves and we're we're hearing from a lot of our customers that actually this is the point where things can change and it would be fabulous if meetings became or if offices became a kind of epicenter of culture we're all suffering a bit with this remote work that we're not immersed in our relationships with our colleagues we're not immersed enough in the culture of our business so when you go into the office if the office is a cold gray place with just tables rows of tables in it actually is that your culture and what we would dearly love and i think this is this is you know when you go and do research you always kind of look for things that strengthen your own position and the things that we all dearly love at the moment and we really look towards is how can we make that office for us concentrated in our culture so that when you do go in there if you don't get to go in there all the time when you do go in there you feel instantly as though you belong as soon as you walk into that office you feel instantly as though it reflects some of what you feel about your company what you feel about yourself and what we'd really like you know if i had the choice of doing anything that would be it would be that it would be making sure that when people walk into their offices it makes them proud to be there and is that going to happen it's a great question it's going to involve quite a dynamism shift um, but we are definitely seeing much more of that happening where uh, most of our customers are asking for a 20 to 30 percent reduction in physical desk space in the spaces that they've got and they're leaning those over to collaboration spaces for their teams and it's requiring you know it's requiring some really careful, tiptoeing around um even internally you know we're kind of we're looking at uh, a couple of our offices which are engineering led and we've got to be really careful that we don't blanket practices across to them because the engineers are, are in the office a lot and they are less able to work with a hybrid space where people move in and out they need much more fixed spaces so we we can't put a blanket across it we've got to be very careful how we do that but we the same thing we are looking at a 20 to 30 percent reduction in our desk space to allow more physical movement of our teams i think the point you made about being proud to come into the office is a very good one because it doesn't necessarily tie to the work place design alone a lot of it comes from the purpose that your job gives you as well and that's in the end the thing that gives you the highest employee satisfaction according to research again it's like finding meaning in what you do and finding what you're contributing to the company's success so if you have that you're already proud to come in <laughs> and then the workplace design is only adding to that kind of and you can then vice versa with the workplace design create that sense of community on the and the mission you are on but it's not exclusive to that that's really correct and If you know that every time you come into the office, everything that you do is is really successful, it only in, <laughs> entices you. There we go. That's the enticement thing again, isn't it? It's more addictive for you to come in and go, oh, 
Do you know what? The last time I went in there, it was fabulous. So a friend of mine runs a beauty company and she was saying to me that what she's seen is an upturn during hybrid working of projects. Anything that's already running, she's seeing being more efficient while people are getting those processes through. But while everybody was out in the office, she saw a downturn in collaboration and creativity. So she's walking the balance between how do you get those two pieces, get those two pieces right as well. And, you know, exactly as you say, if you should already be proud to go into the office, but if you're if your reason to go into the office turns out to be very successful, then it's only going to make you want to come back in or choose. And that, for me, is the real thing. It's choosing what's the most effective thing for that task you have at the time. A lot of organizations currently are looking to the meeting rooms, making them better because they see that collaboration and creativity and innovation sparks from having good meetings. And do you have like an insight on what are the most common mistakes with technology implementation in those meeting rooms? And or do you have a lesson learned to avoid making that mistake? <laughs> Technology implementation. So do you know what? It's a classic one. It's always expectations. And do you know what? People often spend more time getting lost in the investigation stage. They spend more time, especially when you're researching technology. There's so much information out there that you could spend 50% of your time just researching what that means. And you're just going to get spec sheets and videos and marketing material and stuff thrown at you and what we see is is that people get so lost in that that actually they miss out on the time where they should probably be just scoping what they want to achieve better scopes can often get muddled due to time constraints then personally i've seen an awful lot of things go into proof of concepts where we have to bring We've, the only way we can work out whether we want this is by bringing it into our own spaces and trying it. And that's often difficult, actually, because ah, proof of concept. I've, oh God, I've written a white paper on this. So it's a subject I could probably stop talking about very quickly. A proof of concept is proving a single idea, a single concept in a single place or in a closed environment. And Often what people do when they think they're running a proof of concept is they're running a pilot. They want to actually put it out to their users. They want to try it. They want it to look like it really looks like in their environment. But they often skip on really how it would look in the environment, especially in collaboration spaces and technologies. You, I think all of your listeners will understand this, is that you've got architects facilities people and technology people all coming together to try and talk about the same thing. And all three of them talk completely different languages. For me, what makes the enablement of those rooms, especially with technology, more successful is having a really good translator in the middle of that group. It's the best way to reach a really successful outcome for those meeting spaces is having, you know, genuinely it's having part of that team that's doing that needs to be a good personal translator between the three different types of people that are in that room to make the success criteria better, to make the technical outcomes better and to make sure that, you know, facilities aren't going to get very annoyed 
about you sticking a hole in the wrong place or gluing something to a glass wall. You know, just all of those kind of things that happen. Now, I want to have a last look. We're coming to the final stretch. Last drawback on hybrid work. In your opinion, what are the new skill sets that we need to adopt to make that new approach to work work? I think it's the same thing that I've just mentioned with the rooms as well, is if we're going to be in hybrid, we're going to need to adapt. Adapting is easy for individuals, but it's not easy sometimes as a large group. There's a lot of human nature around that. Everybody adapted really well to the shift to work from home because they did it individually with their own choices in their own space. But then bringing all of that group back into the office, it's more difficult because there's everybody broaches lines. So adapting what happens with that large group coming back in is probably a skill set that we need to learn. And again, it's just people. People are distributed, they're different. And I think when we a skill that we could really have is just being really, really clear why we're going into those spaces and what we're doing. Genuinely, I know this sounds simple, but I think that a good project manager in every group is going to become vital. Controlling logistics, mapping outcomes, just keeping a group pulling in the same direction, having a really good translator in the middle of a distributed group, a hybrid group, if you will, I think is probably, it's what's making, I, I can tell you this personally, it's what's making our groups more successful, is having a good translator and organiser in the middle of that distributed group. And that's something I think we could probably adapt to better. Now, I do have a suspicion what your magical wish could be, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you could magically solve any future of work problem, what would it be? Do you know, it genuinely is understanding what somebody new into work is going to want in the next 10 or 20 years. If I could understand what the newest and brightest graduates, interns, etc., are going to want when they're in my position in 20 years' time, that would be my magic bullet. That would be my magic wand. Being able to go, you guys need this. Here, have these spaces because that will make you more successful. I'm afraid some of them might not even know themselves, right? <laughs> no, indeed. 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 But that's why we need to keep them in the conversations. Yes, that's true. But and then but also I think like experiment, giving them options and hear like, do you like this or or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Last one, I promise. Who else should we have on the podcast and what would you like them to ask? Frankly, there's been a couple of people that you've had on the podcast. There was there was Nicola Millard and Brittany as well, Brittany Van Matra. I'm so in tune with some of the things that they were saying about how we're still dealing with industrial revolution processes. The office used to be somewhere where you went to use the tools. Now, the tool that you use is the internet. So the tool is everywhere. And how do you deal with that? And actually, who do I think I'd like to see next on the podcast? It will be somebody that deals with transportation of people to those spaces. When we're talking about people moving between hybrid spaces, I'd almost like to see somebody who deals, genuinely deals with the movement of those people and what our rush hours look like now and what the spread If we had a more intelligent spread of people through the day in the offices, 
how that could work with our transport system, how it could alleviate rush hours, how it could increase what goes on in that and just the kind of movement of people. And that's what I'd like to ask them is, you know, as somebody who works in transport, what do you think would be of most benefit in 20 years time based on us not having to pave and tarmac more of the planet to deal with eight to nine o'clock in the morning? So Toby, it's been a great pleasure. I've learned a lot about what a meeting space is and should be, maybe for the future. Thank you for coming on. Welcome. You're very welcome. I've been fabulously honoured to be on. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Workplace Leader, there's more. Go visit our blog and have a look at some of the other topics we have covered. Or tune into our next episode of The Workplace Leader.